Osborne Richards had an unusual childhood in that he didn't have an unusual childhood, or at the very least, not a noteworthy one. Everyone's childhood should be noteworthy, at least to themselves, but Osborne Richards was neither particularly bullied nor particularly a bully, as much as any small child can avoid being a bully, which is less than one might think. Children are awful. Even his name failed to draw much attention, as would-be deriders were never entirely certain whether Osborne was a normal first name or not, and didn't want to draw attention to themselves by taking the risk. What would be the point anyway? Osborne did little to draw derision his way. In fact, Richards did very little of note until the age of 33, much like our Lord Jesus Christ, saviour of mankind, a joke which later seemed to never get old for him. The opinions of his dinner guests are omitted here. At this age, Osborne Richards had done various grey work for various grey companies. His CV had gone from strength to strength. He had his MBA framed on his office wall. He answered the question, so what do you do for a living, with earnest enthusiasm, without a self-deprecating shrug to be found. He applied himself to the task at hand. He'd worked in recruitment, then moved into a management consultancy position, the utility of which was apparently well recognised to clients, because he started to make a decent amount of money. His work essentially involved calling people, and then calling other people, being extremely confident in those calls, and the subsequent meetings which followed. He spoke to managers about mindfulness incentives and workflow optimization. He gave seminars wherein he told people about the different kinds of people there are, and how to best utilise them in the workplace. This is an area, incidentally, in which it is still perfectly possible to provide confidently delivered pearls of wisdom without any expectation of research or objective truth to be found anywhere within the material at any point, and no disclaimer to that effect either. It's just sort of accepted that when it comes to applying the myriad complexities of the human mind, the guy we want is a man wearing a suit with no tie who read a pop science article on psychology that one time. The only other conditions are that he has a clicker that moves on to the next slide, which he must use casually. These are the rules. It was at the age of 33 when Osborne Richards decided he needed a new challenge. As I'm sure you can imagine, he was the sort of person who used the word challenge a lot. He'd been getting great feedback from his seminars, but he was starting to feel that he had more to give than giving talks in well-furnished conference rooms, even if they did span the length and breadth of the M4. He decided that he would write down some of his methods and get them published. After all, there were all sorts of people whose bosses never received a vague complaint that the team didn't seem very focused, and those bosses never panicked and threw money at the problem, and so Osborne Richards never got to talk to those people. This was an injustice which was difficult for him to stomach. He really believed in the four P's, the seven R's, and the three methods of unforgetting. Everyone should have access to his toolbox. Oh, yeah, his list of concepts had a conceptual toolbox in which they resided. Naturally, Osborne knew some guys in publishing. His first thought had been to go to Sal Knockwood at Rumble House, but he found that they had actually gone under 18 months after the management workshop sessions he'd done with them. He had privately thought at the time that the team weren't really getting to grips with the priority alignment exercises he'd arranged, but what can you do? Fortunately, an American manager named Carl Green had moved over to Front Wave Publishing from their parent company, Connecto's Cheese and Cheese-like products. Kyle had been a big fan of Osborne's methods, and credited them with his decision to move into publishing. A risky area, but a move which had paid off. After that, everything went very quickly. It took a surprisingly short length of time to go from Osborne's notes to prose format. It was just like giving a seminar, he told acquaintances, but written down trying desperately to get across his fascinating view on the creative process. 
Often they seem not to fully appreciate his insights, perhaps because the written word had existed for at least 5,000 years at this point. Osborne Richard's slightly weird but mostly boring name was a great asset in the competitive world of business-slash-self-help book. It stuck in the mind and yet seemed as though it had always been there, and as a white man with his own dark hair, the high-definition shots for the cover were a cinch. They took a full range of shots, leaning against a wall in a casual suit jacket looking quizzical, leaning against a wall in a casual suit jacket laughing, standing in a casual suit jacket with his hands in his pockets, the whole thing. Suddenly, copies were hitting the shelves, and with them, Osborne was hitting the interviews. Marketing the book was by far the more important challenge. Putting good words between a cover is certainly laudable, but the actual aim of the game is to get people to say that you put good words between covers. These are often correlated, but are not the same thing, and lying to oneself about which is rewarded and which isn't doesn't get you anywhere. His debut was called The First Deal Is With Yourself, and despite this, it was a relative success. The tendrils of marketing had worked, and soon formidable people in the business and self-help world, whose names changed with the tides, were singing the book's praises. Some of them might even have read it. A second print run was arranged. The names of those endorsing it all had to be changed, as the top of that pyramid had long since shifted, but it continued. People were actually buying it. He wrote another. And then, another. It was the third that was the real magic weapon. For whatever reason, the price of everything hit the zeitgeist with an unparalleled force. Osborne Richards didn't think about it too much. After all, Chapter 7 was all about the power of underthinking. However, as consciously internalising was recommended in Chapter 14, he did try and consciously internalise for a while. Only a very unkind person would say that Osborne Richards had invented the term consciously internalise because he was the perfect blend of arrogant and stupid to believe no one else had come up with a name for when you stop and work through things linearly inside your head without saying anything before now. Kyle Green privately believed the success of the third book had been the choice of casual sports jacket for the cover in the three years between the first and third books. Osborne kept himself in good shape, and for a certain type of person, show them a man approaching 40 without an actual visible paunch, and they will follow that man to the ends of the earth. Osborne Richards had never been hard up. He moved from one comfortable financial situation to another, and taken on the requisite next level of debt each time. Student loan, mortgage, car payments. It was the done thing. But now he had excess money. Money he wasn't budgeting for. He amicably resigned from his company and started giving public seminars solely on the basis of his own name. He could say anything, and often did. People would come up to him after seminars and tell him how the self-analysis roadmap helped them to get a job, or quit their job, or stay in their job. Marriages were strengthened by his new communication paradigm. It was just like he dreamed of before the first book. Tools that anyone could use, trialled and tested in the fires of middle management offices up and down the nation although largely focused in the home counties. The frequency of the books increased, along with the seminars. He started reading more pop psychology, nodding thoughtfully and tapping the page with a highlighter as he did so. He left notes to himself, with exclamation marks, sometimes in public. Around book six, Osborne moved to Los Angeles. His house in the hills was boxy, all clean lines with the charcoal interior, tastefully furnished with interesting items. Well, interesting looking items. And if an item looks interesting, then surely you're interested. Therefore, it must be an interesting item. 
A number of them made their way into his books, often with such speed that it was unclear even to Osborne whether they had been interred in the house before the line occurred. In my home I keep an ancient African tribal mask to remind me of one simple thing. To be fair to Osborne, he never actually typed the sentence until the object was over the threshold. Book 7 was rattled off, with customary confidence, but then... I wonder if we're oversaturating the market, Osborne told the phone, ceasing his pacing to gaze out of the floor-to-ceiling window looking out over another inevitably beautiful day in Los Angeles. Sure, sure, said Carl Green, carefully navigating a conversation which he'd had to have a couple of times over the years, although never with Osborne. I get that, Osborne, I get it. The thing is, none of our research suggests we're approaching that point. What he wanted to say was, this isn't a market that can be saturated. The only danger is there's a new next big thing and you're not it. But that implied that momentum and name recognition were the things selling books, and not Prometheus's fire flowing unbidden from the mind of the author. It was one of those areas in which Kyle and his stable of talent would always disagree, and he had learnt to keep those opinions to himself, especially when said talent was feeling less than stable. He settled with, As long as you've still got some things to say, people will still need to hear them. That always tended to do the trick. Yes, I suppose you're right, said Osborne doubtfully. So when can we expect the latest? It's been a year and we've not heard anything. The fear that it was all gone, that the well of creation was dry and would never return to health, was a mental screw that could always be relied upon with authors, Carl thought, as Osborne's voice returned to its customary confidence and bluster, arranging meetings and catch-ups. Not the same thing, by the way. Not the same at all. Before wrapping up the call. The phone down. Osborne turned away from the City of Angels and looked thoughtfully at his kitchen work surface. A chopping board held a small puddle of delicately light green water dotted with cucumber seeds. Kyle's jab had landed, but perhaps not in the way intended. It wasn't that Osborne had nothing left to say. He had no less to say than he ever had before. His mind still held frameworks, spiderwebs of simple concepts he could quite comfortably stick together on the premise that happiness and fulfilment awaited at the other end. It was just that he didn't feel like it. He couldn't figure it out. He wasn't even sure when it started. It felt like it had started towards the end of book seven. But he was starting to think it had begun long before that. Slowly, slowly, a feeling of... Of what? He couldn't place it. Perhaps it was an absence of feeling. He'd sit down to write and nothing had happened. Which had been fine for a time. Why force it? But then he'd noticed he hadn't written for a while. Naturally, he went to use some of his own tools, tips and tricks, and yet there was nothing. And the thing was, and Osborne suspected the key to the whole issue, the thing was that actually he didn't really mind. There was the nagging feeling that this was wrong, that this his state of being was intimately tied to the writing of self-help and management books, but really it was just calls from people like Kyle and Sandra, his literary agent, and various people at various seminar locations which bothered him about the situation. Those were just slightly annoying, but... Mostly it was nothing. And that had been fine until about three months ago. Then, just as the apathy had started from beneath and grew across everything else, so did another feeling. Something Osborne had not felt in a very long time. It was sadness. Gentle, like an old friend at first, it came on over months, never stinging, just seeping into everyday situations. This was especially galling, as Book 7 had actually been about positivity in the face of adversity, a subject which he had wondered, sorry, consciously internalised, whether he'd missed the boat. 
But trusting his gut as ever, the sales figures showed the number of people who thought happiness was something they'd like to get a hold of was still pretty damn high. Who'd have thought? Osborne pulled his eyes away from the abstract splash of spent cucumber on the canvas of his chopping board. As he had done so many times this year, he went out to get a coffee. That was a thing writers did. That was a thing he was going to do. Osborne Richards had, of course, a preferred coffee place, and it was, of course, expensive. He pulled his large, dark grey car into the parking lot and stepped into the air-conditioned caffeine emporium. He ordered his coffee and stood off to the side, feeling there should be some kind of official waiting area at coffee shops. You queue to order and you queue to pay, but when it comes time to give you what you came here for, you just sort of mill about, getting in the way. He made a mental note to talk about this in the new book. Surely it could be a metaphor for something, but this was more out of habit than enthusiasm. No excited rush greeted him at the thought. Anyone else might have queried whether this was because it was an unusually banal thought, but this had never been an issue before. Excuse me, are you Osborne Richards? A somewhat short, barrel-shaped man had appeared at Osborne's elbow, with an expression of curious wonder across his features. The fan expression was somewhat mitigated for authors in Osborne's area of expertise, as it was often partially concealed beneath a patina of confident, self-determining, straight-talking, consciously internalising, and whatever other adjectives were espoused in the latest book they'd read. This man, whose name happened to be Henry, looked to be about the same age as Osborne, although his physique was flabbier and his skin pastier. Kyle Green would have been pleased to know that Henry had bought We Need to Talk About Me, the me-you-me pattern, after seeing Osborne's handsome, well-lit, high-definition features on the cover and determining in a place deep in his mind that this was the man that he should have been by now. That sports jacket just looks so casual on him. Hello, said Osborne, smiling weakly. He'd been finding encounters with readers harder and harder over the last year. Yes, that's me. I just want to say... And here the expression of self-actualization reasserted as Henry recalled the messages of the book that I found we need to talk about me to be a really useful tool. It really gave me the ideas I needed to produce at the level I expect of myself. I'm glad to hear that. That's why I do it. So it's always good to know it's helping. Osborne looked casually behind the counter, but his simple double shot of espresso didn't seem to be forthcoming. The barista was working on something multi-layered and elaborate, different strata of coffee being applied to a plastic mug. And of course, I found the ideal state of me hugely informative. It's given me that kick of positivity. I think I was missing, Henry continued, not wanting to admit to himself Osborne Richard's complete lack of interest in him. To be fair, although ignoring other people's personal space was never explicitly recommended anywhere in Osborne's books, it could be said to be the central message of his whole oeuvre. For his part, Osborne lightly winced at the mention of his seventh book's name. Now that the colour had drained from his own life, the thought of the positivity-inducing, happiness-promoting book was a real twist of the knife. In fact, it had actually been once the ideal state of me was out that his own mood had dropped noticeably. And now, here he was, waiting for the most disgusting, sugary coffee he would ever witness to be made so that he could have his own dose of caffeine and go home forced to listen to the prattlings of a man who had found happiness from his writing, his writing, while he, Osborne Richards, had none of his own. Osborne had never really understood the strange beauty of irony. It was too involved, too snidey for his mind. But in his current dark state, there was something bleakly amusing about the thought, cheering him and making him angry at the same time. 
Henry, of course, was still prattling on, telling Osborne how he'd applied the tools as though from one craftsman to another, as if combining the various adjective-heavy mind maps, idea squares and mental workflows was a form of invention, as if any of it were a form of invention. Osborne nodded, smiling with his face with the cold grace of the habitual liar. The stratified sugar liquid with coffee was, of course, Henry's. He fetched it and continued his analysis of the mind while Osborne's was made. Osborne nodded, still thinking about why this was bothering him so much. He used to love this, love the knowledge that he was touching other lives. Even those who proclaimed themselves his biggest fan and then called him Richard Osborne, he'd engage with on a genuine human level. But now, good grief, what was this man talking about? Had he really gotten all this from Osborne? And was it really helping? How could it possibly help? Osborne had never met the man. He didn't know anything about him, he was an enigma. Yet here he was, in a coffee shop, happily and publicly proclaiming all the little ways Osborne's words, typed up in a self-obsessed fever with very little consideration, had turned into great things for him. Another recent feeling surfaced. Self-doubt. And with it, finally, his coffee. Osborne nodded and thanked Henry, extracting himself as best he could, and got into his large grey car. He drove in a random direction, not wanting to go home. The weight of responsibility was hanging over him now, blending with his sour mood into a deadening stupor he knew he could not shake off. He trawled the streets of Los Angeles as if they had ever held answers and not further questions for anyone. The feelings were not subsiding, they would not be countered by anything. It had been a year, no it had been longer, it was time to admit that to himself. He hadn't felt right for years, pushing rather than pulling the words of his books out, small doses of not quite sadness becoming more frequent and deeper becoming larger doses of almost certainly sadness, becoming, well, this. The leaden knowledge that he would feel like this forever and there was nothing he could do. It made Osborne angry that this should happen to him of all people. He should be the least susceptible. Except there was a feeling like something catching his eye but inside his brain that it should happen to him and all his readers out there feeling better, happier, healthier, more productive. He pulled out his phone at the lights, opening a report prepared by one of Kyle's guys. Sales figures, collated, updated every month, reaching all the way back to that first launch. It was a steadily increasing graph, the later years dwarfing the early ones, making those heady early days with all their triumphs and excitement look insignificant next to the rolling ever upwards of his sales now. He filtered by book, revealing a similar pattern but weaved by ribbons of various colours, each one joining the throng and bumping the figures of the earlier ones every time. It was an addictive screen, and one Osborne had viewed thousands of times before. But now it meant something different to him. Those bastards. Out there, all of them, getting stronger even as he grew weaker. They had all his tricks, his tips, his mental exercises. They had his positivity, his confidence, his self-assurance spread thin across millions of readers. Thousands of barrel-like men in coffee shops, thousands of women with permanent expressions as if they'd just caught a whiff of dog poo, hundreds of balding executives who'd gotten the kick they needed to just shave it off. It wasn't much to them. It was a crutch to them, a smile here, a faster report there, a sense of camaraderie amongst colleagues who really had no reason to like each other. But for him, it had been who he was. His bluster, his confident manner, and now there was nothing left. What had he done? He'd given it all away. 
And for what? A nice house, a nice car, best-selling books, millions of dollars, fewer millions around tax time. Sure, he had all that. But he was a husk of a man, bitter and brooding, his goodwill gone, his easy smile taking more and more effort every time he wrenched it into position. Accelerating away from the lights, he looked down at the graphs. He could see patterns. Yes, there. There was the swell in sales for books two through five, gradually building, building, bumped each time he'd spun out another. For Osborne, the impressive growth of the graphs charted his dark mood, the apathy rising as he sold away his motivation, joined by his happiness, his positivity he'd spun together in flimsy, cardboardy words and sold for nine ninety nine at all good retailers. Yeah, if you assume a couple of months to read it, apply it and start seeing results. He looked up from his phone, changing lanes semi-consciously, ignoring the honk from the car behind, and returned his gaze to the screen. He shortened the filter to just this year, the year that it had all gone downhill. And he was sure that was a graph of his mood these last 12 months. From his management now, he'd spent the whole year doing nothing, wasting his 40s. His motivation, his skill with people, his happiness. They were all in his works, but he was sure, looking at that screen that the book which held each as the central premise swelled as that virtue had died within him. Osborne Richards was not a superstitious man, but he was an incurious man. That his very soul could be leached from him like this seemed no less mythical than the proclamations of the Dow Jones. He was furious and irritated with himself for giving away so much for so little. Up ahead there was a sign for the 405. An idea was forming. He swung back into the right-hand lane and pulled up on the slip road, finally able to head home. He dialed a number, which rang only once before his agent picked up. Osborne, good to hear from you. How are you? Good, I hope? Sandra exhaled. Hi, Sandra. I'm very well, thank you. I spoke to Kyle earlier today, and I've got some chapters I want to send over to you. Oh, that's great, Osborne. So glad to hear it. They're not written yet, but I'll probably have something by the end of the week. Great, I look forward to reading them. Always does me good, breathed Sandra. Osborne wrapped up the call and smiled a different kind of smile. The feeling inside him was not the same as the cheery go-getter mania which had powered his writing and his life before. It was something else, but something, now he was aware of it, which could probably be co-opted into being motivational. Just long enough to break through the apathy anyway. There was something he wanted back. And when that happens, what should we do? Osborne Richards intoned. Keep it inside, the audience chanted back, repeating the mantra that had been the focus of the last half an hour. That's right. Now, we've all been in situations where someone wants something which is simply unreasonable. We've all been there, right? Right? My agent would know all about that. A conspiratorial chuckle went around the packed auditorium, the connection through vaguely described shared experience bringing the room together, as it always had done. Now let's say a figure of authority had been hounding you for a project, and you've delivered the deliverables, but the unobtainables are still being asked after. We've all been there, we've all had it. Now, your instinct would be to find out the way your boss thinks, and to engage, to really engage with them on that level, to sit down and explain why the unobtainable is really out of reach, and to suggest alternatives to meet everybody's expectations. Right? The audience nodded. 
if there was anything they'd learned from Osborne's Richard's books, and that itself was a matter of debate, then it was to get what you want while also getting your colleagues what they want through communicating clearly and genuinely. That it took seven books for them to understand this should not be held against them, unless you personally know one of them. But actually, Osborne continued, current research suggests that this can bring about conflict memories. And here he enunciated clearly to make sure everyone heard the capital letters. Conflict memories can reduce the success of all parties, regardless of the success of the project which generated them. Have you ever fought for something you felt was important, and this can be a project at work, a discussion in your marriage, anything, only to find that further down the project you experience resistance on something related or unrelated which set you back even further? The audience nodded. Yes, yes they had experienced this very vague and somewhat inevitable phenomenon. They had cared about something, it had gone well at first, and then less well. My god, that exact same thing had happened to me. Osborne Richards had done it again. So here's what the best minds in the biz are saying. Osborne Richards didn't specify which biz. Why would he? That would only diminish the number of best minds under discussion. If you get pushback, and you think you could be forming a conflict memory in your project partners, let it go. Stop pushing at that time. The audience stirred. This was unusual. This wasn't how Osborne Richards usually recommended they went about things. But what I want you to do is hold on to that idea. Hold on to the thing you thought was the best idea, but the other party, whoever it was, your boss, your client, your wife or husband, the other party just couldn't see the same as you. Maybe they weren't smart enough, maybe they don't have your vision. What you do now is you make that idea come about through two things. Willpower and suggestion. For that, I always use this list. It always works for me. I call it the four rules of data insertion. What are the four rules? I can see you're desperate to know. Let's start with number one. The garden wall. When you experience a negative moment of communication, maybe you're being reprimanded, maybe you're reprimanding, maybe there's a disagreement on another part of the project. What I want you to do is bring up that idea that the person stopped you from using. You need to be subtle, but it needs to be pointed. Anything around them not respecting your ideas, or not seeing the value of a good idea, alluding to the earlier argument. This will get your idea over the garden wall, in times of disagreement. Now, key to this, if they catch on to your comments and want to discuss it further, you must refuse. Remember, this is about getting the idea over the wall. You don't want a discussion of your idea in a negative light. So if they want to revisit your idea, I want you to insist it's fine, that they were right, that they know best. Insist with all your heart, and keep it on the inside the knowledge that your idea is clearly great, and they're too stupid to see it. Now, number two. Osborne paused mid-stride, clicking his clicker to the next slide. To his side stood an easel with a poster of the cover of book eight. They'd gone for a dark, dark suit jacket for this one and an enigmatic look on Osborne's face. It was a smile, everyone agreed. It was definitely a smile. It was a smile which the real Osborne Richard still had up on that stage as he continued into his four steps. The bitterness had been just as good a source of fuel as the motivation he'd found. The book had flowed out, bastardised reversals of nearly everything he'd said before. It was a tome, each method and workshop designed to fuel resentment, inaction, listlessness and lethargy. Sandra had expressed misgivings, and had sent chapter after chapter back for rewrites, but they came back identical, or worse. When they met, 
Osborne just stared at her, a gleam in his eye she'd not seen before, a new, different energy to his movements. He looked as though he wasn't sleeping. Eventually she gave up on the chapters. Her job had always been tenuous, Kyle and Osborne able to produce both ends of the process entirely without her. She passed the chapters right through, started booking seminar rooms and signings like she always had. Any sense of connection to the quality of the book now long faded. After all, she had read and reread hours and hours of it. That does something to a person's mind. Kyle had barely noticed the content. He registered it was a change in direction and made design decisions accordingly, but it never would have occurred to him not to publish. The numbers didn't lie. This would sell. And it did. Even now it was flying off the shelves, and self-help gurus and reviewers everywhere panicked at the new paradigm, and, terrified there was a new game in town and they were missing out on it, endorsed its genre-defying boldness with aplomb. Up on stage, Osborne clicked onto the next slide again. Just a couple of years of this. Just a couple of years pushing through the apathy with sheer bitterness, and he'd have it all back. All the positivity and the genuine motivation would seep from these fucking leeches, and it would come back to him. And then he could do something else once it was back. Just a little while longer. Just until it was back.